Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Caddy Kay, anchor of BBC World News America. Caddy reports, writes, and commentates on international as well as U.S. affairs, including Wall Street issues and the White House. She's also a New York Times bestseller and co-authoring books including Womenomics and The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Caddy. Great to be here. So I wanted to start off with some of your background. Um, you didn't uh, grow up originally thinking of yourself as a uh, as a, a journalist. You actually had some uh, designs on being an economist, is my understanding. So how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, when I was um, studying at university and I studied uh, modern languages, French and Italian at Oxford in the 1980s, most of what I studied actually was medieval Italian, which passes as modern languages at Oxford. Um, all of my friends were thinking, who were doing liberal arts, I'm going to become a journalist. And many of them actually wanted to join the BBC. And perhaps almost perversely, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to do that. That's what everybody does. So I'm going to do something different. I left Oxford and went and joined the Bank of England on their graduate trainee program. And luckily for me, they did take people with a background in languages and not economics. And it was there that I kind of, you know, taught myself enough economics to be able to read the Financial Times. And then I applied to to go back to Oxford, actually, to do a postgraduate degree in development economics. And I got a place. But in the meantime, the possibility came up for me to go and live in Zimbabwe, in Africa, working for an aid agency. And it was while I was out there, actually, that a friend of mine who worked for the BBC at the time came out to visit, and he brought with him a little recorder. And he came out and visited and he said, you know what, there are so many great stories here, you should be telling those stories. I loved it so much that I jettisoned my place back at Oxford to do a master's in development economics and carried on working for the BBC. But it was fortuitous. It was not what I was planning to do. Well, economics and medieval Italian are practically the same thing. Yeah, so, that's yeah. what I thought. I thought, you know, reading Dante and the Divine Comedy gave me a perfect <laughs> background to go and study development economics. Why not? Absolutely perfect. Well, you have been lucky to have a front row seat at some of the most interesting times in reporting um, uh, and also the misfortune of being involved in some of the, you know, um, misinformation campaigns and conspiracy campaigns of our of our time. It's so interesting if you could help our listeners understand how do you start to think about how to convey information in a way that is trustworthy. And I know that trust is a really complex term and a complex word, but how does the BBC and you in particular think about conveying news that people can trust? It's such a great question because we are in a world where there is so much misinformation and all of the research on this shows that misinformation spreads faster across the internet than real information. So falsehoods are traveling faster than truth. And I think that's a kind of terrifying prospect for all of us, not just for us who are in journalism, but for us as citizens, because how do we make informed decisions about what policies we support, who we're going to vote for, which news organizations to trust, um, how we're going to live our lives how we're going to make decisions about everything from whether to get a vaccine to who to elect for president 
if all our social media feeds and the internet that we spend so much time on is full of stuff that isn't true. And I think some of the onus is on us as consumers of news to be more savvy about this. We are going to have to educate ourselves on how to spot what is real and what is a conspiracy theory or a falsehood on the internet. Um, because it's not going to go away, right? The genie is out of the bottle. We have to know, is the news organization whose website we're reading, is it reputable? Is it real? Is it reliable? What are their editorial processes? I can tell people that the BBC is a reliable source of news, but I've also got to hope that our consumers of news and myself as a consumer of news know that when we go on a website and we see a piece of information, let's take a photograph. Are we getting the whole photograph? Who put that photograph there? Has it been edited? Has it been cropped in a way that is not telling us the whole story? Go, we, we're going to have to start running these checklists because the amount of misinformation out there is really alarming. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was re reading recently that uh, seven out of 10 reposts of misinformation happen before the person actually even reads the content. They yeah. literally just click and re-click. And um, it's a fascinating psychological phenomenon. And, and we do know as well from studies that the more people only go to one politically slanted source of news on the internet, the more extreme they become, right? So you start living in an echo chamber where all you're doing is having your own viewpoints reinforced. Uh, your thought process is never being challenged because you're only being fed the same views that you have. And it pushes you further to the extremes of the political spectrum. So I think as well as being kind of careful about what we consume and is there an editorial process there, it's also important to think, am I getting a balanced diet? You know, <laughs> nutritionists right. speak about having every color on your plate. Well, I think it's important to us as well to consume different sources of news, to make sure that we are getting a range of opinions and, and knowing where those opinions come from. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon. You, you, um, we recently have had some guests that have talked about how there's, uh, there's concern about bias in AI, in that mm -hmm. uh, you know the AIs themselves could actually conclude things. But in fact, uh, the math is fairly neutral. It's the question. It's the perspective. It's the way. It's the right. questions that you're asking, the human element that are uh, that are most important there. And this is the same, right? How does one actually start with the starting point? And I wonder if you could comment about that. You started from the point of view of trying to have the BBC really be newsworthy and 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 uh, in the neutral position there. How does that start? How how does the organization think about? Uh, what, what its content should be, what its starting point for that content should be, and and how to stay to that narrative of truth as you described it. <laughs> there's a there's a joke that goes around the BBC of it. When you join the BBC, they take you into a room in the basement and they extract your opinion organs from you. <laughs> I, I, it did not happen to me. You do not go with this. It's not 1984 and some Orwellian uh, idea. But I, I think from years of having worked at the BBC and being so committed to this notion of reporting the facts, I mean, it kind of sounds almost quaint and old fashioned, doesn't it? But we, we really are committed to are we reporting the facts? And that doesn't mean you can't analyze because we also would be doing our audiences a disservice, I think, if we didn't put news events into context, right? I mean, something happens somewhere in the world. You don't want to just know what has happened, that a coup has happened uh, somewhere or an earthquake has happened somewhere, you do need context. You need some analysis 
to that context. I just think it's a question of making sure that the analysis doesn't come from a personal bias. Um, am I giving both sides to a story? One person says, this is the facts. Another person says, this is why this coup happened. Am I giving Am I giving the full spectrum of context that allows then our audiences to make up their own minds? I do think this notion of kind of news as a public space where people can go and get the facts, get the analysis, and then they can go away and form their opinions as opposed to having their opinions and going somewhere where those opinions are reinforced. It's just quantifiably different. I mean, it's, right. it's a, it's a, and, and I, you know, happen to believe, which is why I work for the BBC, that there is a real value, particularly in this era of era of disinformation. And the process, the process is actually pretty simple. I mean, we always make sure we have two sources for any story that we want run. So it can't just come from one, one source that way you're, you're checking, it gives you some kind of controls. Um, I make sure that different points of view are um, put forwards on our news program. And we're thinking, for example, at the moment, it's an interesting subject, the minimum wage, and explaining what the arguments are for and against a minimum wage. But we mm -hmm. wouldn't just have somebody on who was against a minimum wage, we wouldn't just somebody have somebody on the program who is in favor of a, of a minimum wage in the States, of raising it to $15. So uh, to make sure that we have different points of view and you try and explain the facts as best you can to make sure it was reliable. Let's focus on for a moment on your minimum wage example because I think it's very interesting. So this, after all, is a, a podcast about data. And I'm interested in terms of how you think about the presentation of that data. So there are pros and cons, and some of these things are fairly sophisticated economic arguments in terms of the impact to GDP versus the impact to net wealth, the impact to all these different kind of things. How do you think about the level of expertise that's required in your basic consumer? You know, is there a thought process that this should be appropriate for a a 10th grade education or, or a university education? Or, or how do you think about the conveying of information in a way that is consumable in the time that you have allotted? Look, I think people do learn best from stories. It's really about telling stories. And people respond far more powerfully to a story than they do to a, a bunch of data um, or economics. Now, you can make sure that data is told in story form. So you can give people the information, but you give it through something they can relate to. And I can tell you, you know, in the amount of work I do and speaking to people, people remember anecdotes and stories far more than they do a bunch of statistics that they give you, mm -hmm. that you give them. So make sure to tell the story. And often that is, you know, telling the human impact of a policy decision. So as we have at the moment, the US Congress is weighing uh, whether to raise the minimum wage uh, across the country, give them the stories, the story of the small business that could no longer employ people because the minimum wage was raised too much, the story of the person who benefited from the minimum wage being raised. People will remember that much more than they will the data. So you're giving them the data and you're giving them the facts, but you're giving them it in a form that is human and relatable. So this topic of storytelling that you bring up is so important. And uh, for people that work in the analytics area, it is so easy to forget that story. And I, and I have a question about how you process that. Which comes first? So in some respects, we always talk about the story uh, illuminating what the statistics suggest. How do you make sure that the story isn't a one-off anecdote and is actually representative? Mm -hmm. So back to this idea of, of bias. 
I th- that's a really smart question um, because obviously whenever you do a story in a news bulletin, you are editorialising just by very virtue of the fact that you choose which story to put on the bulletin, right? I mean, right. I could choose to do a story about Ethiopia or I could choose to do a story about Indonesia, but I don't have time in my bulletin tonight to do both. So I'm going to weigh which of those stories I think is more important uh, and is the one that my audience needs to hear. It's about, I mean, and you know, this comes from years of experience of making editorial decisions and being in the news business, but it is about making sure that the stories that you put on air represent a, the, the broadly accepted plethora of opinions that are out there, as opposed to just one of those opinions. This is a really interesting concept. And as you know, in journalism, one of the things that has been uh, recently kind of combining these ideas of misinformation and uh, and balance, uh, there's been a concept that there have to be two stories, there have to be two sides to every story. And it's led to this idea that some of the misinformation is actually possibly true. It's just an alternative version uh, or an alternative view. <laughs> alternative of facts. Exactly. Alternative facts, as we call them. Um, what's your view on that? How do, how do you balance the idea of, of requiring an alternative view when in fact the truth does not warrant it? I think in some cases it's fairly clear what the truth is. Um, I don't think there are alternative facts. There are facts. Uh, The fact is that we went through a US election that was litigated and the court cases found the election to be free and fair and won by Joe Biden. Those are facts. You can say the election was contested, but you can then talk through the rest of the story, which is that it was contested, it was litigated, and this is what the courts found. And I think if you present it like that, um, it's fairly, in some ways, it's fairly simple. Yes, one of my favorite quotes is from the late uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Yes. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the composition of the newsroom, male versus female, over the past you know, 20, 30 years that you've been involved in the journalistic area, and what it's done to the selection of news stories and to the treatment of those stories at the BBC. Hmm. I, I think, you know, newsrooms, the news industry generally, I mean, not just the BBC, but newsrooms writ large, like everywhere else, have become fortunately more diverse over the last 20, 30 years, uh, where it used to be the preserve of white men to be the news anchors and the top news reporters. That is no longer the case. News organizations have realized that if they want to reflect their audiences, they cannot just be white men over 40. They've got to be diverse. They've got to have young people. They've got to have people of color. They've got to have women on air. And I think that is a process that has has accelerated over the last 10 years. I think up until about 10, 15 years ago, the tendency in newsrooms used to be to slightly, as it was in other organizations and industries, to play lip service to the idea of diversity as a kind of PC thing. Like, you know, we've got to do the right thing, so we must be diverse. Um, and we need more women and we need more people of color and we need more representation and young people on our air because that is the right thing to do. 
I think that's changed. I mean, I think there is now a recognition that you cannot be a successful organization, whatever your industry, um, if you do not represent the people you are serving. And our customers are not all white men over the age of 40. They are half and half men and women, and a lot of them are not white, and a lot of them um, come from different backgrounds. And, and we as a as a business won't be attracting viewers and listeners if we don't reflect that from the people we put on air. And I think that's the shift that's really taken place that's been so interesting that has unlocked the push for diversity is when organizations realize that, I put this in terms of bottom line, the the BBC is not a a for-profit organization, but if it were, it would be a bottom line issue. For us, the bottom line is about getting, you know, maximizing our viewers and listeners and, and reaching as many people as possible. So it's not a PC issue. It's not a nice diversity thing. It's a bottom line issue. So let's pivot a little bit to uh, an adjacent topic for you uh, uh, on diversity. Um, you have been a very accomplished author in the area of women in the workplace and women's confidence and, and the evolution of of how to track confidence in, in young girls and women. And I'd like to start first uh, understanding uh, the content of your first book, uh, w- Womenomics. And uh, to paraphrase, it's something to the effect of work less, achieve more, and live better. (laughs) Yeah, well, doesn't that sound nice? It sounds wonderful. Um, (laughs) So we wrote this book, I write with with my co-author, Claire Shipman, uh, who is also a television journalist. And Claire and I um, were both sort of television journalists with young children who were working the crazy hours that television news demands and we would have these kind of huddled conversations at the corner of press conferences or um, events where we would both be in Washington and we'd say to each other there has to be a better way than this we're working you know 12 hour days six days a week we are not seeing our young children we want to carry on working we're both accomplished we're both educated we want to carry on doing this but we are hitting that brick wall of when kids meet career And we really started looking at how women were valuable in the workforce and how organizations that sort of took the clocks off the wall and gave people alternative work schedules actually outperformed their competitors as well. They had a rise in productivity. If you give people control of their schedules, and and it's simple in a way, if you just treat people as adults, uh, they will perform better for you. They will be more loyal to you. It's a very good way of rewarding talent, and in particular, female talent, and in particular, female talent in their kind of 30s and early 40s when they are in that crunch position of having young children and having careers. And organizations that recognize that and do something about it uh, have a much better chance of it's, – it's talent management. They have a better chance of retaining, of retaining female talent. And that can work for women's benefits as well. It gives us more control of our schedule and it works for our organizations. And in your last book with Claire Shipman, you took on this idea of confidence and how when women and men are not the same in a professional or personal context, and you explore what happens to girls and young women as they as they go through adolescence. I wonder if you can talk our listeners through through that process. And talk about what I think is absolutely fascinating, that you've managed to quantify what confidence is. There's a science to what confidence uh, is in a person. Yeah, um, we got really interested in the whole subject of confidence. And we interviewed dozens of 
um, academics and psychologists and business leaders and politicians and people in the military. Um, we interviewed neuroscientists, people who are studying confidence in rats. I did not know, Joe, that there are confident rats and unconfident rats, but apparently that is the case. Who knew? Um, and who knew? And the best definition of confidence we came up with was um, somebody at Ohio State University who defined confidence and said that confidence is the stuff that turns thoughts into action. And we love that definition mm. of confidence because it's all about doing things and taking action and taking risks. And part of the reason that there is a confidence gap between men and women, and look, there are lots of, you know, there are not enough role models out there. The, the playing field is not level. We do not have yet equal pay for equal work. So there are a ton of societal reasons why women might feel less confident at work. But there is also something that women are doing that that holds them back unnecessarily, and that is underestimating their abilities. Columbia University has even quantified this um, and says that men tend to overestimate their abilities by something like 30%, whereas women routinely tend to underestimate their abilities. One of the most reliable social science tests that you can do in academia is to give men and women a scientific reasoning quiz. The men will tend to say they perform better than they perform. The women will tend to say they perform less well than they actually perform. In effect, they perform about the same. So we got very interested in why there is this confidence gap between men and women when it comes to the workplace and what we can do to help close it. And a lot of it is about encouraging women. And, and now we've started working with girls too, because this all sets in around puberty, but encouraging women to uh, take risks and, um, and overcome hurdles and, and, and think less, think, um, you know, there are many wonderful things that come from the female brain and from the onset of estrogen that hits girls in puberty. Uh, and but one of them tends to be a capacity to ruminate. So if we can ruminate less and act more, we can start to close that confident gap, confidence gap. I think one of the studies we did that for me is so indicative of this and, and gets to what women can do that was really interesting was with a guy called Zach Estes. He's a professor at the University of Milan in Italy, a professor of psychology, and he's looked at the issue of confidence and gender. And he gave men and women a spatial awareness test, and they had to kind of solve a series of computer puzzles on a screen. And it was a group of men and women together, and he gave them this test, and the men performed significantly better than the women. So Professor Estes went back over the results, and what he found was that the women had skipped answers more often than the men had. So the next group mm. of, contest of participants he had, he told them, everyone has to answer all the questions. When the women have to answer all the questions on this quiz, they perform just as well as the men. And when we asked Professor Estes what's going on here, why are the women skipping questions when they know that it's going to lower their score, right? And his answer was fascinating. He said it's they don't want to take the risk of getting the answers wrong. They would rather skip them altogether than take that risk of screwing up or failing. In other words, they want to be perfect. And that's really quite something because in the age of, you know, agile development and analytics, failing fast is actually a key to success. Right. Yes. And we talk about failing fast in the book. The, the idea of, and it's the sort of counter perfectionist argument, isn't it? Where mm -hmm. don't invest two months in an idea and spend hours and hours and hours on it because then you're going to be reluctant to give it up and you've invested a ton in time um, and then you put it out and it doesn't work. Put it out after two weeks. 
you know, give it a go, take a risk. What have you got to lose? And a lot of what we're talking about with women and with girls is assessing the downside of any risk. Because nine times out of 10, the downside of the risk that you are thinking of taking, whether it is asking for a pay raise, uh, going for a stretch assignment, applying for a promotion, if you're a 13-year-old girl raising your hand in class, the downside of that risk, nine times out of 10, it's less than your brain is making it out to be. So really be honest about the downside of risk and be honest about your achievements to date. Because if that Columbia University study is right, the men are overestimating their abilities and women are underestimating their abilities, do a checklist of the times that you have succeeded and the things that have gone right. And that might start then to bring your perception of your ability back in line with your actual ability. Just seeing it in black and white on paper will probably make you realize that you have achieved a lot more than you are giving yourself credit for doing. It's really terrific advice. It's uh, reminiscent of the uh, of the risk impact uh, matrix, right? What is the risk, and then what is the impact uh, likelihood versus yeah. impact? Yeah. So um, you try talking to teenage girls about that. <laughs> They're not as fascinated by two by two matrices as I am. Um, <laughs> no, that's why we tell it in stories. <laughs> remember. Well done. So, Caddy, as we wrap up the conversation, I wonder if you could give us three takeaways on how data is affecting your world. Only three. Um, <laughs> wow. I think it, I mean, it affects everything I do, right? So uh, let's take the work I'm doing with girls. Um, we did a survey of hundreds of thousands of girls and got the results of that survey back in order to have a clear picture of what girls are going through in teenage years. That kind of data just wouldn't have been available to us, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now we can do it and get it and analyze it and sift through it very quickly. Um, we have come up with, along with two professors at Ohio State, a confidence quiz, uh, which is on our website, confidencecode.com. And it's a quiz that uh, you take that is, is very scientifically based. All of the data from that quiz is being fed back into academics for them to sift through. And, you know, perhaps this shows our lack of confidence. When we launched this quiz, we thought we'd get three or 400 people answering it. We're now up to a couple of hundred thousand. Well, all of that data is being number crunched at Ohio State University to come up with research on confidence and gender. So, just in my own world, I'm using data the whole time. But every single morning, I I get up and I look at my Twitter feed and I look at which tweets have got, not my own tweets, but other people's tweets have got, you know, the most pushes and the most retweets. And I use that data point as a way, imperfectly perhaps, to analyze how important is that piece of news. If a breaking news story is getting tons of repushes around the internet on Twitter, that suggests to me that that is a big news, it's like a big flashing, here's a big news story you at least need to start looking at. So I'm constantly using data to, to, to help me in my job make the decisions I make, whether it's about the research I'm doing or about the news programs that I'm putting on air. So, Caddy, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? I'm on Twitter, uh, at Catty K underscore. I am on Instagram, uh, 
at official Catty K. That was my daughter, Poppy, who set that up. I don't quite know why it has that title. And of course, we have a website for our books, confidencecode.com. And you can find out all of the information about our books on there and the work I'm doing with women, including our latest book, which has just come out, Living the Confidence Code, which is such a great news story. And gosh, don't we all need some good news in this time of dark news and tough times. It's the inspiring stories of 30 girls from around the world who are doing um, remarkable, amazing things to make the world better, but also to challenge their own confidence. They are so honest about their struggles, about their failures even. They are not perfect, but they are all expanding their confidence and making their worlds and our worlds a better place. Well, thanks, Katie, for being with us. It's been a real pleasure. Joe, thank you. That was fun. Katie Kay is the anchor of BBC World News America. She reports, writes, and commentates on international and U.S. affairs, and is a New York Times bestselling author of books including Womenomics and The Confidence Code. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Thank you, Caddy, for reminding us of the importance of diverse thought, clear thinking, and the criticality of confidence in driving action. Confidence that allows both men and women to fail fast to achieve great impact in school, business, and their communities.